Welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of short stories everywhere. Today, we have two short stories for you to listen to. What do you know about dogs? A man said to me, I don't know much about his pedigree. It's easy to tell. Kanish by Martin Nathan, read by Luke Blackwell. It's a long time since I had a Kanish, down on Brighton Beach, Coney Island, with everyone speaking Yiddish or Russian, smoking long white cigarettes, wearing fur coats, even the dogs, fur on fur with studded collars, and a Kanish. You take a lump of stuff and wrap pastry around it, that's the recipe, fried in enough oil to seize the arteries. Potato, kasha, onion, cheese, any way you gotta eat it with mustard. For a long time I never met Uncle Freddy out there. Just heard about how he ate nothing but kanish and horseradish, wore an astrakhan coat all weathers, like an old Hasid. If ever a pause visited our family conversation, someone muttered how Uncle Freddy would have had something to say about that. He had a joke for every occasion, but no one ever remembered what they were. I said how I wanted to meet him sometime, but they said you never expected Freddy. Suddenly he was there, and then he was gone. So I liked Uncle Freddy, even though I'd never met him. But I didn't like Kanish. Freddie would have had something to say about that, my father said. How can a person not like a fried lump of mush smeared with enough mustard to turn your face red and yellow both at the same time? Kanish and Coney Island. They said how Freddie loved Coney Island, even though the place was always changing with Jews, Russians and Uzbeks coming and going, and each lot previous would not be seen dead with the newcomers. What even is a Coney? Some kind of rabbit, my father said, when he got my mother a rabbit fur coat. A coat made of rabbit. My mother held it up in disgust. My whole life has been a disappointment. Our family was half in New York and half in London, and I spent most summer holidays there. I'd been there two weeks and I was bored of relatives and I wish I had money for the funfair. I had my father's camera and I was taking photos of people, boardwalk, people, boardwalk. Always careful, because some people don't want their picture taken, especially on Brighton Beach. I'd focus on a menu board or churning ice blue slush and shift sideways as I clicked the shutter, like it was an accident and I'd lost my balance. I saw this old guy walking past with a nose pumped up red, with burst blood vessels like a big ugly boil, pulling a dog with curled up back legs so he ploughed the sand. I had to photograph that nose, so I did my trick with the sideways shift. He caught me. What's the idea, camera boy? He said. A face like this costs money. You want to photograph this face, you've got to work for it. He knocked a stick deep in the sand and hooked the dog leash over it. He looked at me and crouched down to the dog. See that boy, he said to the dog. You watch him. I'm going to Kanish. The dog let out a mournful wail as the man joined the line at the Kanish shop. Hey, it's okay. He's coming back soon, I said. And the dog barked at kids with a frisbee, a unicyclist, a juggler, before settling down on the sand. I'd always wanted a dog. I'd pointed at them in the street. What about that one? What about that? He who asks doesn't get, my mother always said. So I stopped asking and I still didn't get. I watched as the man left the shop with the Kanish combination box. I knew the range. I'd photographed that board. Potato, onion, kasha, ground meat, cheese, blueberry, sour cherry. All the flavours. Size from cocktail to stop you eating for a week. He came by and I felt sad he was going to take the dog away. He dropped a kanish into the sand for the dog. You watch my dog for me, he said. I've got business to attend to. 
and he went off down the boardwalk. At first the dog had snarled if I strayed within the circle of his leash, but now he sniffed the canish and he lay on his back for me to stroke him. He had a lopsided head and patchy fur and he looked like the kind of dog no one wanted. I decided when the man returned, I would tell him I wanted his dog. And if he gave him to me, he could have the watch my father had given me. A chronometer, with all the buttons to time events down to a tenth of a second. They used a watch like this on the moon landings. What? They used it in space? No, but the people back on Earth wore them. I broke off a bit of knish, where it wasn't sandy. Offered it to the dog, then ate it myself. He's not coming back, I said to the dog. You'll starve to death here. Kasha Kanish. Who gives a dog Kasha Kanish? The dog didn't tell me I was wrong, and the sun was getting low, so I unhooked the leash and took him home with me. I was worried about you, my mother said. You must be starving. The lump of buckwheat was still heavy in my stomach. The dog needs food. My mother shook her head in despair. Oh my god, a dog! That's all we need! A dog is always eating! And we've got a visitor too! The man stood in the kitchen doorway, eating a knish with a smear of mustard on his big red nose, still wearing in his coat. So that was Astrakhan. It's... it's... My mother was lost for words. Hey, camera boy, he said. It's the knish man. He mimed taking my photograph. A knish for every occasion, he said pointing at the combination box on the table as if it was the funniest thing in the world. He told us his stories, and he told them about my photography trick, and said he wanted a copy of the picture. Then he hauled the reluctant dog off down the road. We ate knishes the rest of the week, all the flavours and sizes. Our bellies heavy with stuff, and no one ever mentioned the dog. What do you know about dogs? A man said to me, I don't know much about his pedigree. It's easy to tell a female from the rest, for a female's got a lot of... That was Knish. It was written and produced by Martin Nathan, and the reader was Luke Blackwood. Now you're going to hear the prison poem by Rebecca Ruth Gould. One day, towards the beginning of the second millennium, a poem was born on the periphery of the Central Asian Ghaznavid Empire in a town called Lahore, in what is now Pakistan. The poem had a difficult childhood. It was incarcerated for 18 years simply for laughing at the Sultan. Being in prison shaped its content and altered its form. It was tortured and its body was covered with scars. When the poem was released from prison, it decided to migrate far away to the Caucasus, to a beautiful city called Shirvan, in what is now the Republic of Azerbaijan. The Shirvan Mountains reminded it of the Pamirs, where exiled poets like Nasir Kuzro made their home. In Shirvan, the prison poem matured into adulthood. We might even say that it became a man, although women read prison poems and received inspiration from them too. It matured into a poet amid torture and tyranny until, in early adulthood, it moved to Delhi, returning to its South Asian origins to accompany poets who were persecuted by the sultans of Delhi. The prison poem gave these poets a language with which to challenge the sultan's power. It loved to travel, but even more than that, it loved to fight for justice, 
for what it knew to be right, even when that meant opposing the sultan. In the world of the prison poem, the poet was always sovereign. The poem was compact and powerful, as prison poems ought to be. It spoke about gambling, the cosmos, the Christian God, and most importantly, prophecy. Some Persian poets who wrote prison poems imagined themselves as Jesus Christ on the cross, telling the world what it didn't want to hear and reminding rulers of the fragility of their sovereignty. It was commonly believed that poets who could write prison poems knew secrets and truths that were concealed from the rest of humanity. People turned to such poems in times of need, like a magic charm. Prison poems were on everyone's lips, even the lips of those who never went to prison. Incarceration became a badge of honour, a sign that the prisoner was willing to fight and suffer for a cause. Prison poems were recited like incantations, like profane Qurans, reminding sultans that they too would die and that their reigns would come to an end. The sultans understood the message and they were afraid. They imprisoned as many poets as their prisons had rooms for. Some prison poems were so powerful that they persuaded the sultan to release the author. Any poet who could write such magic was a force to be reckoned with. Most prison poems, however, languished in obscurity, in manuscripts buried in forgotten libraries until they were eaten by worms and consumed by mildew. Many decades after its birth, already in old age, the prison poem acquired a name, Habsiat, the poem born from incarceration. Habs means confinement. The name had been given it by Nizami Aruzi back in 1155, when it was still a child in Afghanistan, making its way to the Caucasus, but it didn't really catch on until much later. Even prison poets didn't know what it was called. They just knew how to create and recreate it, and how to use it to challenge their jailers. However, the prison poem didn't need a name. By then, everyone knew what it was. Everyone lived in fear of the Sultan. Everyone knew that what you did when you went to prison was write poems. In the 20th century, the prison poem was born again in the Iranian heartland, the land of Hafez and Saadi. Under the shore, and then within the Islamic Republic, ancient prison poems were sung from prison cells, and new ones were composed, sometimes in prose. They were smuggled out on toilet paper. One day, late in the 21st century, an age of so many tyrannies that they are too numerous to be recorded, a young man asked his beloved a question. If I go to prison, and if I write poems, will you publish them? He asked her. Will you make my prison poems known to the world? Like the young man, his lover had grown up in a country of prisons and prison poems. She knew what she had to say. There is only one possible answer to that question, she said. If you go to prison, you must write a prison poem. That was The Prison Poem, written by Rebecca Ruth Gould and produced by Tabitha Potts. The reader was Julia Lewis. Thank you for listening to Story Radio, and if you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Goodbye.